This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome back to another edition of the Daily Maverick Show. My name is Greg Nicholson. And in the last couple of days, I've been thinking about an incident probably when I was about 10 years old. I think it was a Sunday, and I was in a car with my dad driving through Melbourne suburbs. And over the radio came the news that someone was on a killing spree at the old Port Arthur prison colony, uh, and that's in Tasmania. Before he was arrested the next morning, 28-year-old Martin Bryant had killed 35 people and injured 23 others. Most of the victims were shot with a semi-automatic rifle. Now, my dad, his brothers, and my cousins regularly went on camping and hunting trips. So when the government announced after the massacre a ban on semi-automatic weapons and pump-action shotguns in response to the massacre, there was some skepticism within our family. But that event was the worst mass shooting in Australia's history, and political parties across the spectrum endorsed the banning of the highly lethal weapons. Like many other families across the country, we traded in the banned guns we owned, which were bought by the government, and then destroyed. Now, the clampdown on guns in Australia, it's widely recognised, has made the country much, much safer. This weekend in the US, Stephen Paddock killed 59 people and injured another 527 when he opened fire in a crowd from his 32nd floor um, in a Las, uh, a Las Vegas hotel room. Police found 23 guns in his hotel room and 19 more at his home. Multiple, a multiple amount of them were semi-automatic rifles, which are legal in the US and easily accessible. Now, mass shootings are almost a daily occurrence in the States. We know about the Pulse nightclub, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook. Then there are many others that don't make international headlines. Yet the resistance to gun law reforms remains strong. It's exhausting to talk about the insanity of the situation because it seems just that. It's insane. Now, on the line today, we've got Daily Maverick journalist Jay Brooks Spector, so we can get at least a better understanding of why the U.S. has so far been incapable of making significant, likely life-saving changes to its gun laws. Thanks for joining us, Brooks. Hello, hello Brooks. Yeah, we're here. Brooks. Let's get into this issue and go back just a few years to talk about the Second Amendment. Now, the Second Amendment often uses a defense um, from, from harsher gun laws. It reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Brooks, when we look at when this Second Amendment was drafted, do you think it was ever envisaged that it would be defended in this manner now? Was it about militias or citizens, their liberal freedoms, and the right to self-protection? Well, it's good you you you, you want to put this in its historical context because uh, if you if you go back to, and look at the debates about the Constitution by the people drafting it back in 1787, they in turn were looking further back uh, to English history uh, as well as the rebellion, the successful rebellion against the British that had just ended a few years ago. They were looking back as far as the glorious revolution in Britain uh, and Thomas and uh, Oliver Cromwell's period. So they had an historical context, too. And the argument, really, uh, by most scholars, is that the, the, 
purpose of the amendment ultimately was to allow free citizens the ability to join their state's militias and be able, therefore, to defend themselves against a government that might hypothetically become dictatorial or authoritarian, if you want to use the modern term, uh, and try to repress them and their rights and uh, behave outside of law. Um, now, you have to marry that interpretation with the American myth of the frontier, in which everybody was a sturdy pioneer on their own, defending their family, their hearth, their home, against um, the barbarians that might come over the next hill or across the prairie. And then you marry that with a more recent 20th century, late 20th century, and even unto our own time, uh, the idea that the government was now something of an inimical force, ready to trample on the rights of of citizens, uh, and this is something of a of a an amalgam of the the uh, the hangover from the the Vietnam War period, as well as the far right view about the relationship of citizen to government. But you put all that stuff together, and it becomes a very powerful uh, ideological position. One more thing has to go into the mix. National Rifle Association is very strong lobby group, uh, lots of members, lots of supporters, and they, not surprisingly, as a lobby group, contribute to the campaigns of members of Congress, uh, the Senate, and presidents to continue to support the idea that the Second Amendment, even if, even with its origins back in the 16th, and seven, sorry, the 17th century, uh, that the Second Amendment provides a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for almost every kind of weapon. But the, get, the, the Second Amendment has limitations. I mean, the average American is not permitted to buy an aircraft carrier, uh, a strategic bomber, a nuclear warhead. Uh, a fully automatic rifle uh, is prohibited. And individual states have various kinds of licensing uh, requirements, cooling off periods or records checking requirements, not all states, but, but, but many of them, so that there are in practical terms a, a whole range of limitations on the ability of, of citizens to take up arms of any description. Um, and the argument that there's an absolute prohibition against this just doesn't stand even though there have been court cases, and most recently in the Supreme Court, the Heller decision uh, that argued that this uh, Second Amendment right was indeed a very wide, all-encompassing kind of right. But it, it, that, amend, that uh, court decision obviously never authorized the ability of people, as I say, to buy nuclear weapons or strategic bombers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you've said a lot there that we can unpack. If if we look at so some of those factors that you mentioned on the the changing interpretations and and the use of the Second Amendment as a defense to to own guns, it seems let's look at let's look at this. In the twentieth century, we know that in the U.S. there was quite a rise in the sort of anti-regulation, libertarian, uh, anti-government, and the conservative agenda. What's the link between these sentiments and the current fight against gun tr- gun control? 
Well, I mean, gun control, the, the advocates for it, the people who believe that, uh, that this, this idea that citizens have to be able to defend themselves against those barbaric hordes over the next hill, whether they were federal agents or uh, invaders from someplace else, um, gun control advocates say that's a very curious and quaint notion, uh, but it belies the current circumstances of life as it is lived. Uh, and they point after all, to the idea that many states have, as we said, uh, various kinds of regulations and restrictions um, already. Uh, but the the far right, the alt right, even the libertarians, continue to argue that the greatest threat to liberties comes from government as opposed to others. And uh, some of them are sufficiently uh, over the edge, uh, the survivalists who are convinced that any moment now, we're going to live in a Mad Max kind of world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 this is a struggle of differing perceptions of what, what the nature of the country is all about. And every time there's a mass killing, whether it was in a primary school or a high school, as in Columbine, primary school uh, in, uh, in Connecticut, uh, whether it was in a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, or on a military base, as happened some years before, even at a at a uh, at a training session for uh, Republican congressmen to compete in the annual Republican Democratic congressional baseball game, uh, this argument comes back at us with great force. Uh, but the end result is not everybody concurs that these limitations are useful and there is a substantial portion of the population who believes that the regulations uh, impinge on their rights, as granted in that constitutional amendment, that any regulations impinge on their ability to defend their their home and family against uh, the bad guys, those bad hombres, if you borrow a Trumpian phrase. Uh, And we don't have, as you do in so many other countries, a final and considered and fairly homogeneous view about what constitutes the right, proper way in which individuals react and relate to firearms. And that's unfortunate, because what it does say is that there is going to be, almost as sure as the sun's going to come up again tomorrow, um, there'll be another one of these. Uh, Somebody with a grievance or a, a loose rubber band in their mind uh, is going to assemble firearms and is going to pick and choose a moment and do some terrible things. So it's a battle of perceptions. You mentioned before one of the key groups in influencing perception, um, the National Rifle Association. It's a powerful lobby group advocating for an individual's right to carry guns. Um, but can you just unpack a little bit more about the history of the NRA, uh, what it does and how influential it is in, in American society? Yeah, I mean, it's really a—it's kind of a curious phenomenon. I mean, let's first of all just lay out what an interest group is. An interest group is a perfectly legal entity which represents the values, opinions, judgments, uh, or interests of a group of people. Of you know, you get your choice: animal lovers, or vegetarians, or owners of weapons, um, and their right to petition the government is. Uh, encumbered in the Constitution as well. The right of the people to freely uh, uh, seek redress from their 
protection from their rep- elected representatives is, a, is also a constitutional right. And up until fairly recently, well, all right, let's say 30 or 40 years, um, but I'm older than you, Greg, so I remember <laughs> it still. The National Rifle Association was a fairly um, normal kind of institution, and the primary goal that they had was the proper training and maintenance and management of people to learn how to properly use firearms, presumably for target shooting, hunting, or uh, you know, dropping back a bit, uh, personal defense. Over time, with the rise of the hard right, they began to take on a rather different coloration. They began to be part of that constellation of forces as well. So they shifted from a kind of you know white bread version of of, of their behavior to something much more strident, much more shrill, uh, and ultimately, uh, personal view here, sadly, a much more effective politically potent force that by collecting uh, dues from their members and contributions from uh, rich supporters, they had a nice war chest to distribute legally uh, to um, candidates or elected representatives uh, in their campaigns uh, for re-election, mostly for Congress. What that has done in turn is made it very difficult to pass any sort of federal legislation that would further uh, restrict or circumscribe the right of people to own and bear arms, to use that constitutional uh, phrase. Um, And in recent years, certainly, they've made major contributions to presidential campaigns where the candidate was strongly in favor of that quote-unquote Second Amendment right. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Daily Maverick Show. Uh, I'm speaking to Daily Maverick journalist Brooks Spector about gun gun um, laws in, in the United States. If you want more of this sort of analysis, uh, news and opinion pieces, uh, opinion work, log on to the Daily Maverick website, dailymaverick.co.za, scroll down and you can subscribe to our newsletters. That will take you straight through for your daily morning and afternoon news. You can sign up for a number of newsletters. Those newsletters are driven by uh, TouchBrace Pro. You can go to www.touchbrasepro.com and click Book a Demo. They show you how to use the system. Share their, They can share the screen with you. It takes 20 minutes. It's super easy to use. You don't have to commit at all. And the demo will be tailored to your company and your needs. Now, Brooks, back to these issues... The issue of gun control linked to the NRA, you've, you've, you've unpacked it quite well there, but it's been, when we look at po- politics, it's been delivering votes um, for, you know, since around 1970, it's been a big vote winner. Can you just sort of describe the nexus between voters, lobby groups, and winning elections? Well, I mean, uh, it all comes back to a phrase that I, I think is one of the real classics of American politics, and it was first uttered by a man who most of your listeners will never have heard of, Jesse Unruh. He was the Speaker of the House of the California State Legislature for dozens of years. He was a fixture in California politics uh, for his almost entire life. And uh, he's, he's most noted for his one phrase, money is the mother's milk of politics. 
And what he meant, of course, is that money is the thing that makes politics go forward, makes it work, makes it possible for politicians to become politicians. Um, now, there are, obviously, there are restrictions on contributions to individual candidates. You are, as a citizen, uh, you're allowed to make your contribution, but it's there are particular and precise reportable limitations on how much you as an individual can give to a candidate in any one election at the primary level and then ultimately in the general election. And those same limitations uh, prevail for groups, interest groups, or lobby groups, or corporate groups. Um, the difference is that certainly uh, in more recent years, um, because of another Supreme Court ruling that effectively money was the same as free speech, uh, interest groups generally, especially ones that are well-heeled, are effectively freed from any limitation on spending money in a campaign that's not directly tied to a candidate. In other words, it's tied to an issue. If you were if you were organizing a campaign on behalf of the National Rifle Association and you said voting in this election is crucial this year, it's crucial, support candidates who support your right to own nuclear warheads, you know, or whatever, um, that, there's no limitation on the spending of that now, mm-hmm. effectively. Uh, and as a result, the voice of a group like the National Rifle Association gets stronger, gets more shrill, uh, gets presumably uh, becomes a voice with more impact and more oomph to it than even before. Now, it's probably also true that in a very quiet kind of way, those kinds of campaigns are tied very closely to candidates uh, who espouse those views. There's nothing that's ever stated directly, and the ad can never say, vote for John Smith, because he supports those rights. If they say, vote for candidates who believe in this, then they're, you know, they're off to the races. As a result, a lot of politicians, a lot of congressmen, senators, especially congressmen from what they call swing, swing districts, where the, it's divided pretty evenly, Democratic and Republican, and also between people who feel really, really strongly about gun control and people who feel really, really strongly about absolute right to own whatever you want, such politicians become that much more cautious about bucking the idea that is espoused by the National Rifle Association and other related groups. It's not all just those, those guys in their building uh, it's other groups that have similar ideas. Mm. If you took a poll across the country and you asked every citizen, every citizen of voting age, uh, whether they were in favor of stronger or lesser gun control regulations, you'd probably get a majority saying stronger regulations. But if you did it in a more nuanced way and you had various kinds of regulations, then the opinions would be across a kind of a smorgasbord. Very few people uh, would advocate the forced uh, collecting of guns from people. I mean, you know, that would that would be an anathema to most Americans to have federal agents show up at your door and start 
confiscating your firearms. On the other hand, um, regulating more tightly the waiting period. In other words, when you went in to say, I want to buy that shotgun, here, fill out this form, come back in two weeks after we've run a police check and uh, contracted uh, or contacted the people who can tell, tell us about your mental health. Um, rather, more people would, would go along with something like that because that seems like a fairly reasonable idea. You don't want lunatics and, and escaped felons uh, buying firearms. That seems like a recipe for trouble. But there's no one complete, easy, straightforward set of regulations that everybody is prepared to adhere to. How, and, how though, does the uh, the approaches and the way gun control is treated differ under, I mean, treated by society at large, as well as the approaches by the individuals themselves, differ under the presidencies of Barack Obama versus Donald Trump? Well, I mean, uh, the, the Trump candidate, the, the Trump, Donald Trump as a candidate, uh, pronounced himself strongly in favor of Second Amendment constitutional rights to ownership. Um, and it hasn't had any particular legal or legislative impact. I mean, there have been no there have been no new pieces of legislation and no new laws that have come out of the Trump administration relative to the gun control. And but the Obama at the same time, at the same sorry? time, it's, I said at the same time, it's unlikely. Then it's extremely unlikely that Trump will curtail uh, um, gun control. Yeah, I think you could bet on that one. Yep. Um, even now, I mean, you know, here's the here's the interesting part. Uh, yesterday, uh, he did what a president ultimately has to do after one of these tragedies, sadly, is come on television and tell people that it's, it's heartbreaking to watch and, you know, it's a dreadful thing to happen and our hearts and prayers go out to everybody. And for once, his speech was absolutely on point with the kind of deliberate presidential rhetoric that's called for in these kinds of public moments of mourning. I mean, it was it was word perfect for what had to be done, right? Uh, somebody wrote a very careful speech for him, and he read it without any improvisation, which is uh, you know, a blessing, I guess. Um, but you're not going to see any push from him for more control, and that's the part, of course, that's left out of, of his address. Uh, he didn't say, and uh, to prevent this from happening again, we must impose uh, stronger regulations on this, that, or the other thing. Uh, it would have been an easy at that point to say something like even those of us who believe strongly in the Second Amendment uh, must agree that we have to be we have to arrange so that we're more it's more careful who who gets to buy the things but uh, here's the thing the, the, the shooter in Las Vegas uh, complied with all the regulations when he bought uh, apparently two rifles and a, and a handgun um, he didn't have any police record except for a traffic ticket he hadn't been in a mental institution. He wasn't on any lists. He hadn't done anything wrong in his life sufficient to get anybody's attention. And so simply the act of doing more thorough checks probably wouldn't turn up his name in any case. And so you're left with the problem of just how far down that road do you want to go. Now, I mean, you're, you're from Australia, right? That's right. Yeah, uh, and... Uh, a couple of few years ago, I guess it was about 20, 25 years ago. That's right, in the, in the late 90s. Sorry? 
In the late 90s, there were, there were strong restrictions imposed on semi-automatic weapons. And the Australian psyche was not entire, at least historically, in sort of the legendary kind of the mythic past, I mean, Ned Kelly and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was a sort of a, a feeling of manhood and indiv- individual rights are tied up in gun ownership, but the country was able to come to grips with the fact that it was no longer the frontier. It was, you know, the, 20th, the late 20th century at that point. Uh, and society has not... Uh, legal rights under the Australian Constitution and basic uh, legal framework haven't shriveled to nothing as a result of this. And there have been very few, if any, mass killings, obviously, mm. because uh, such weapons weren't available for people to do this. Brooks, Brooks, I'm sorry, we're running out of time, but just sure. just quickly before I let you go, let me ask finally, when these mass killings repeatedly occur um, and we know many more occur that you know that, that are a smaller scale that we actually don't hear all that much about but mm. when something like Las Vegas occurs how do you personally feel having covered these issues for so long um, having known them very well how do you personally feel I feel very sad um, I feel very sad for the people who were killed obviously I feel very sad for the families of such people I feel you know deeply saddened for the people who were wounded and have to put their lives together. Um, but then I also go, gee, if it, you know, except for the, you know, the luck of the draw or the grace of God, I've been in lots of large crowds in, over the years, and I could, you can only imagine what, what it would have been like to have been in a situation where someone did the same kind of thing. Um, you know, look, I have never owned a firearm. Uh, when I was in the army, I was taught to use, you know, rifles, uh, and I was able to pass the, the appropriate test. But the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to own one on my on my own. Uh, I don't feel my rights are imperiled because I don't have a a, a room full of, uh, of automatic rifles in my back of my house. Brooks, I think uh, we'll have to leave it there. I'm sorry. No. J. J. Brooks Spector, Daily Maverick journalist. You can read his, read his work on the Daily Maverick website. Thank you very much for joining us, and we hope to have you back soon. Cheers, Brooks. This is CliffCentral.com.